Support for Warm Regards and the following message come from Wonder Capital, allowing individuals to invest in solar projects. Earn up to 8.5% annually while diversifying your portfolio and combating global climate change. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com warm. Do well and do good. Hey, everybody. This is Warm Regards, a dialogue between the climate scientists, newsmakers, journalists, and people on the front lines of climate change. I'm Andy Revkin, ProPublica's senior reporter for climate, here in Cold Spring, New York, in the Hudson Valley. Sadly, we won't hear from master meteorologist and grist blogger Eric Holthouse today. He is dug in, editing, uh, uh, grappling, and tracking all the troubles in hurricane land. Um, both places like Puerto Rico, where he's been um, an essential presence on Twitter, reminding people of the um, tragedy that unfolded there and remains to be resolved in the Virgin Islands as well. So maybe uh, next time we'll hear from Eric. Jacqueline Gill, our resident climate-focused paleoecologist, is tuning in from the University of Maine. Hey there. Hey. And (laughs) before we get to our guest, Sarah, I just wanted to quickly ask you, uh, you've had quite a peripatetic schedule, I think that's the word, involving tar pits and and drilling in main lakes. Can you just give like a thumbnail version of what's been going on? Yeah. And also you use one of my favorite words, um, peripatetic <laughs> there. So bonus bonus points for that. I actually got into science for the for the vocabulary largely. Oh um, I'm a word nerd. Uh, yeah. So I decided um, I, I like to, to live my life on challenge mode. So I went into the field a couple weeks ago with my postdoc, uh, Caitlin McDonough-McKenzie. She's a Smith Fellow, and she's looking at the um, basically how alpine and subalpine plant communities in New England responded to climate change in the past, because these are basically vulnerable sky islands of vegetation that really has nowhere to go. Other plants can kind of move up in elevation as the climate warms, but these these plants are sort of trapped at the top. And so there's a lot of interest in what will happen when the climate becomes less suitable for them. And there was a period uh, around five to 6,000 years ago where it was warmer than present um, because of changes in Earth's orbit. And so we want to know how the plants responded in the past. So to do that, you basically have to go up to the tops of mountains um, and we found a lake. Uh, we didn't find it. Um, it's in Acadia National Park on a trail. It's it's pretty well known. Um, but it's Maine's oldest lake, Sargent Mountain Pond. And uh, we hiked up a whole bunch of gear uh, with the help of some amazing Sierra Club volunteers. Um, they were such good sports. It was it was really challenging at times. One of the biggest things was this. We had two pieces of four foot by eight foot, three quarter inch plywood that we needed for our coring platform. And it's basically a mile long staircase because, um, you know, in New England, we don't really do switchbacks in our mountains. And so it was really challenging, uh, but quite rewarding. And we got a record that goes all the way back to when the ice retreated from Maine. We think Sargent Mountain is the, the oldest lake in the state. And then I basically turned around and got on a plane and flew to Los Angeles for a project meeting um, where at the La Brea Tar Pits, where we are looking at Ice Age food webs over 70,000 years, basically, of of climate change to try to get an understanding of how these these large animals and small animals and plants all interacted with each other. And the idea is if we can 
build a, a food web and then we can uh, a model of a food web, we can basically turn the different knobs and dials of this food web and, and, and perturb it in a, in a sort of computer model sense and see just how vulnerable different species are or, or if their connections or their lack of connections with other species make them more vulnerable to climate change. And since we actually know what went extinct, we can then use that as a way to, um, once, once we validated that model, we can then ideally uh, make it available for folks to use in systems where animals have not yet gone extinct. So we can try to, to suss out vulnerability in places where we still have our very large animals like, like Africa. So it's been it's been kind of like uh, two different projects, a bit whiplashy, uh, and also two very different climates, two different coasts. Um, but uh, I don't know. I love my and job. Two different paleo climates too. Two different paleo climates too. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. One big question, for example, is like, has LA always been, you know, the the beautiful climate that it, you know, the Mediterranean climate that it that it has today, and we don't. Yeah. Know so um, this actually provides an interesting transition to talking about. Climate, climate change adaptation because, uh, and Sarah Moore will help us explore the, the reality. We're not just adapting to a changing climate, but to um, the end of um, the end of normal, <laughs> you know, whether it's sea level rise or, or climate patterns, uh, the system already has so much momentum that, um, and also not to mention the biological changes that are going on, on with the invasive species and stuff. Uh, it's not just climate that has created this reality that this era, this great acceleration moment is is something fundamentally new. You know, humans have always dealt with change and, and with challenges, whether it's um, saber toothed tiger or or <laughs> or climate change. But but, you know, something's new. And what you were just illustrating to me is the something that journalists have tend to do, too. I mean, every word out of your mouth the last minute was excited and engaged and kind of this is cool these questions are neat and like as a journalist when i writing about climate for 30 years you know you think people say well how can you do that it's like well it's so so freaking interesting <laughs> you know but it's like this hovery detachment thing that can take us away from some of the other aspects of it but that's and sarah has been dealing with this a lot so sarah it's good to have you with us hello out there this is sarah moore she's a climate change adaptation researcher based in Oakland, California. Um, and Jacqueline, I th was it Jacqueline or Jessica? Someone noticed this piece that you had written, which I have now read thoroughly, um, um, that grew out of a um, workshop last May at a climate change adaptation uh, conference. And it was a workshop titled When Armageddon is Your Day Job. And you wrote this piece for Ansia, mm -hmm. Is Climate Change Driving You to Despair? Read this. And you followed up more on your blog. Um, it's called, the blog title is The Past is Not an Option, which I love. And um, people can find it at uh, pacificadaptation.blogspot.com. So I guess just if you could just start with how, is, how you've developed this as a focal point for inquiry for yourself. How did, what, what dragged you into this tar pit? Uh, <laughs> um, well, I'm always thinking about how do we talk about this, uh, I mean, you guys also talk about this a lot, the boring bad news of climate change, how do we discuss it with people outside of our belief circle? Mm. But I also think we need to talk about how we talk about it with each other, how do we carry the boring bad news around in our, you know, in our minds and bodies all the time, knowing what we know and knowing that other people don't know or don't believe that it's important. So. 
Over the last seven years of going to conferences about climate change adaptation, I noticed this low level of despair that was kind of in the background. And I would get caught up in bad news offs, you know, like, you think that's bad, have you heard about? And it just, it seemed to be a way of life to be sort of comfortable with this level of despair. And I thought, how do we not give up? So this is prior to the Trump election that I'd been talking with Amber Paris from the California State Department of Fish and Wildlife about how do we incorporate storytelling amongst ourselves? How do we incorporate um, expressions beyond just science? How do we talk about our feelings about this work? And we dragged in our, our friend Kristen Goodrich from the Tijuana River Nest, uh, National Estuarine uh, Research Reserve where she does trainings. And we just had this on our minds, like how do we bring this into our circle of colleagues to talk about how this affects us and where do we find hope? Most of all, how do we share our coping strategies and support each other? So we proposed this session for the California Adaptation Forum and uh, I took the title from John Richardson's article from Esquire from 2015, which you know said uh, when, the end of, uh, how, when the end of civilization is your day job, it just caught, got a lot of um, buzz and I had to keep it to, I think it was six words. <laughs> <laughs> Changed it to Armageddon also, you know, trying to, you know, not copy exactly. But anyway, it wasn't accepted and we thought, well, that's, you know, fine. People aren't ready to talk about it. Well, let's just throw it out there for the National Adaptation Forum. We certainly weren't expecting to get in because that's, you know, highly competitive. But we were accepted and we were given a really excellent slot and we thought, oh, Trump. <laughs> mm -hmm. Everyone's really worried about this field suddenly. People are retiring from the federal workforce, people are, you know, just expressing new levels of anger and despair that has to do with, you know, the daily feeling of resignation after eight years of building up federal leadership and forward momentum, what, what's going to happen now? So anyway, I think that's why we got into the National Adaptation Forum. And when we got there, there was so much buzz about this session and people were just coming up to me from all angles to talk about it. And um, then when people came to the session, we had about 33 people and they were really ready to talk about it. People had already been addressing this issue, had been going to workshops and, you know, discussing their own coping strategies. I just wasn't really um, expecting that it would be a ripe topic and people would be launching to it, into it from a position of um, a lot of forethought. Um, how, and, how much of this has to do, oh, sorry. Go ahead. How much of this has to do, perhaps, with the mental model of what this thing is, this thing called climate change, which everyone seems to have a, sometimes mm -hmm. there's a diverse number of uh, ways to characterize it. But, you know, in the um, first decade of the 21st century, it was all about solving the climate crisis. And there was mm -hmm. there seemed to be a lot of um, language pointing to the idea that it was a problem to solve, that it had sort of this simple template you just get the right president the right this technology and it's uh, done it's like a problem you solve is is a very um, one-time thing as opposed to what climate change adaptation is all about is that even as you solve the problem you have to deal with the realities that it's already underway it, it, how much of do you get a sense that some of this is people sort of adjusting having to adjust mental models that felt simpler well i people who work on greenhouse gas reduction and people who work on adaptation don't tend to be the same people in my experience. Not always, but, you know, and there's certainly a ton of overlap between the fields, but I find that people 
who are engaged passionately in adaptation are working on multiple levels of social problems. Like they're used to, you know, looking at it and saying there is no post facto. We'll never be able to evaluate our success. We just have to keep trying. Um, so I think that you find people in, in my experience in adaptation field um, events is you find people who are really comfortable with a certain level of um, mushiness to the problem, like that there isn't going to be a bing. We have a new form of geoengineering and it's all solved. We see it as, I see it as um, intersecting with a lot of other things that create vulnerability. So um, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think that talking to people, my friends and colleagues who work almost strictly in energy efficiency and uh, coming up with the, the latest um, concrete policy or technology to fix this, mm. They have a lot of dis a lot more despair in some ways than I do. Looking at adaptation, they see it as you know giving up, and um, so I don't s see those people coming to the adaptation conferences usually. It's um, interesting. Uh, when I do, they're looking around like, "Oh, we've all given up!" Like they're kind of shocked. And it's like, "No, no, this is important to do alongside reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and also there are a lot of you know co-beneficial." things we can do. I see that a lot also as a paleoecologist because a lot of what I work on is understanding what makes species or communities vulnerable to climate change or resilient. Um, and, and I focus a lot on ecological interactions and extinction impacts. And, you know, a lot of what I try to do is push back against ideas of, you know, the balance of nature or that there's sort of one static way mm you know, which is the most recent snapshot we have, and that that's the, that's the way that these ecosystems should be, and we need to try to manage them in place in a very sort of static way. And I, I tend to argue uh, intellectually for a lot of dynamism in the natural world, which is what I see when I sort of zoom out across time. But often I get pushback from people who say, well, basically what you're saying is that if we take a geological perspective, we can just throw our hands up and say, well, things change, we shouldn't care. And and that's not what that's not what any of us would argue necessarily, and it's certainly not what I've argued. It's more that really constraining what's happening now through the lens of the past allows me to to focus, right? Mm -hmm. We can't save a million species from climate change with individual species plans, right? We we can't, you know, keep every single parcel of land managed in place. Like there there will be change. You know, Andy mentioned things like invasive species. Species are moving around both naturally and because of people. Species are going extinct because of land use change. Some species are probably on the way to extinction even without people. Yeah. And so what the, the past does for me is, is it allows us to sort of narrow our focus um, and, and brought in terms of, you know, where do I have to direct the, that limited energy and those limited resources in terms of protection? And it also just op opens up a little bit what I can be comfortable with as a conservationist, that there's a lot more dynamism and change that I'm comfortable with um, than maybe someone else who has a mandate to manage something exactly as yeah. it is. And I actually find that very freeing and sort of the opposite of pessimistic. I don't, I don't actually find that a cynical view. I find that a very sort of positive view. Um, two of the people I've followed and just consider kind of leading lights in this way of thinking is Susie Moser, Suzanne Moser. I'm sure you've heard of her. Sure. And one of the things, she, she's really good at dropping uh, resonant phrases. <laughs> and one of them, she said, stuck with me we cannot save everything we love. And 
you know, she believes in hope. She believes in radical hope. She believes in, in, you know, us continuing to find paths forward that are transformative, that, you know, create strength throughout our systems, not just, you know, environmental. Um, but she says it like it is. We cannot save everything that we love. And that's hard for especially people in the conservation field to hear. Um, the, I'm sure you've heard of Connie Millar also, Constance Millar. And she's thinking really wonderfully, radically about how some of these processes that we're seeing that we're grieving over are creating stronger ecosystems. I mean, she talks about how um, the pine bark beetle goes after sicker trees. They don't go for healthy trees. So we're actually seeing a speeding up of the, um, in at least some of the pinon forests that she has studied, like the, the trees are getting healthier, that we're getting long, potentially more drought adapted trees. Um, so our forests in the end might come out, out the other side of drought and beetle infestation stronger and better. So I take hope in, in those studies. Um, I also yeah. take hope in the philosopher, uh, science writer, Lewis Thomas's theory that we're part of a larger organism and we don't really know our function fully on this planet. So I find hope in the unknown. One thing I, it, and when was it? A couple of years ago, um, two different magazines asked me to write this big reflection on having what I've learned and not learned <laughs> in covering climate for so long. And and I, I really dug in on, well, it was one of the magazines was creative nonfiction. So I felt I could kind of, t you know, let my hair down and, and I was just digging in on my own feelings. And, and one, one thing I really, I was trying to figure out why I'm not freaked out by it. You know, what is it? How much of that is personality? How much of that is, um, as I was saying earlier, that kind of thing journalists do, where we sort of hover over a problem instead of, you know, engaging with it emotionally. And, and how much of it was just sort of a understanding of the parameters of the problem, as as Jacqueline was saying. I think long time scale looks at ecology and climate give you a little more sort of um, scope. And and one of the things that kept emerging in my head was this, uh, I, an agnostic serenity prayer. Um, in the sense, it's like you know, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. And like a lot of this is the letting go part of this is just like that. It, it's There are aspects of this that fall into the adaptation um, bucket because any any sober look at the science tells you what what can change and on what time scale. And mitigation people, as you were saying, are in a different culture sometimes and, and don't like to go there. And science is the thing, the wisdom to know the difference is like, that's what science offers us. And paleo sometimes reveals like the past can be incredibly extreme. You know, things that we think are extreme now are actually um, well within the range of what's happened in the last few thousand years um, through the same kind of lake studies that, that uh, Jacqueline, you're doing now. And um, even, and then there's, you know, it's, it's kind of emotionally inconvenient, uh, but at the times there was a paper that came out from Jeff Donnelly years ago. So interesting. Uh, he was in Vieques in Puerto Rico Digging in uh, the mud there, and there's um, past cooler periods in the Caribbean had more intense hurricanes. And so, and you can either go there or choose not to go there, but it, the science kind of helps at least to delineate, clarify some of that. And I think I find that comforting in a way. You know, it's sort of then you, then you can kind of, but you have to be willing to. Then there's that letting go part, which is hard. And what you all think about that? Yeah, no, it's interesting because I, you know, I, I have, I, I try to remain an open mind or to have an open mind. I, 
reread T.C. Chamberlain's amazing paper from the early or the late 19th century, it's like 1899 or something, called The Method of Multiple Working Hypotheses. And you can find copies of this easily, PDFs on the internet. Um, but it's wonderful. He talks about how we treat hypotheses like favorite children. And we have to avoid that, right? We have to be agnostic. And, um, you know, so I, 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 do, I do try to go where the science tells me and I, I try not to hold on to to these ideas um you know to to or have a favorite you know favorite child right um with my science and my research and it, it, it's interesting you know kind of bringing it back to this question of, of despair or or fortitude or resilience or whatever you want to call it um you know may, maybe like Sarah I don't actually you know I don't I, I don't follow the adaptation literature as much as I probably should but for me what makes me despair is not it's not the the reality i guess it's not the research it's it's the it's the it's the political reality i guess i should say it's not the geographic reality or the the scientific reality um i still you know i still maintain hope that we have the capacity to either adapt or forestall adapt to or forestall the worst climate impacts on on human livelihoods and on biodiversity but what makes me what, what gives me a hard time is that sort of lack of political will right because it's like we have we have enough data to act on on so many things and and even if a lot of those actions didn't necessarily have a positive impact on climate change you know the old the old argument that well even if climate is not actually changing or it's not changing because of human activity you know, there are all kinds of other reasons to take the steps to reduce carbon emissions that, you know, many of which are related to human health, for example. And and so, but it's that lack of human will. It's, it's the same thing, like something in the news right now that's really hard to, to deal with is the Las Vegas shooting, right? It's, it's like another example of we have data, we know what causes these mass shootings, we know how to prevent gun violence, and yet there's this massive force this political force that makes it so hard um, to, to, to make, it's like moving the Titanic, but if the Titanic was the size of Saturn, you know, like it's, it's, it just seems so intractable to me. And that's where, that's where I get depressed. And I just felt like this last election in November was such a step backwards in so many ways that it's the political reality that, that makes me despair and that keeps, I don't know, that that's what I have to grapple with, like grappling with the anxiety and the depression because of our political reality so that I can come into my office and do the science. Mm -hmm. That's what I find hard. Support for Warm Regards and the following message come from Wonder Capital. Wonder Capital's online investment platform allows you to invest in solar energy projects across the U.S. Earn up to 8.5% annually while also diversifying your portfolio, curbing pollution, and combating global climate change. With Wonder's help, individual investors like you financed more than 50 large-scale solar projects in 2017, which will offset the CO2 emissions from 14.2 million pounds of coal burned in the first year alone. You can begin investing with as little as $1,000. And best of all, Wonder Capital doesn't charge any investor fees. To learn more about the solar projects Wonder Capital is helping to finance and the impact of their investments, create an account for free at wondercapital.com warm. Wonder Capital, do well and do good. So Sarah, um, when, do, on, the, on the adaptation side though, one thing I've found, I don't know if you have, is that 
you can immediately start to have a pretty productive conversation with people who might be politically divergent um, mm -hmm. or ideologically, you know, libertarian or liberal. When you're talking about resilient or resilient community, or you know, taking away a subsidy for flood insurance that that I, I know many libertarians despise. Um, that that's logical if you want to have a floodplain less prone to you know, hurting a lot of people and breaking a lot of stuff. It seems like an arena where you can get more, you can actually have more traction, you can get more done. You, you know, the mitigation thing is so much, that again, the timescale issue. To me, the timescale issue for the adaptation thing has these things you can actually do mm -hmm. um, and see accomplishments. Sure. I don't know if you get that sense or not. Yeah, I mean, well, adaptation is not one thing. It's It kind of depends on yeah. what you're talking about more specifically because obviously people want to work in, to protect their homes. Like if you're talking about people on the coast and you try to talk to them about, you know, sea level rise, they engage, <laughs> you know, they, they will talk to you and maybe they don't want to move their homes, but at least in some places there, there is some success in talking to people about not building new homes <laughs> on land that's going to be underwater. So people do, I think in many cases act in their own self-interest and, that also goes for mitigation. I just want to put in a, a pitch for, I come from a small town that doesn't have any zoning and doesn't really have any government or police or professional anybody looking out for anybody. Everyone's on their own. It's a haven of libertarians and unabombers as far as I'm concerned. It's like a lot of people <laughs> who just, you know, they don't want the government anywhere near them. So what happens is people go off grid. They learn how to install solar. They learn how to... Um, do micro hydro, they learn how to do um, wind power, and they start selling their energy back to the grid, you know, and that's something that's mm -hmm. happening in small towns where people don't want government interference. So I just, you know, saying that it's not all one or the other is easier to talk about. Um, if you talk about energy independence, that can have a lot of traction. Um, but I'll say that, yeah. you know, when I'm on an airplane next to somebody and I tell them where I'm going, and it's often something adaptation related, you know, I don't use the word adaptation, first of all. I just say, I'm going somewhere to talk about climate change impacts. And they want to discuss it. And I'll say, well, what have you observed? And I say, well, my water table has dropped on my land. Or I'm getting flooding worse than I've ever gotten. Or, you know, the heat this year killed all my tomatoes. How bad does the heat have to be to kill tomatoes? <laughs> you know, So, right. you know, we have great conversations about what people have observed. Because almost everybody has observed something. Um, but I also don't want to, you know, get down those rabbit holes with people who don't think it's important. You know, I don't want to have to find someone's altruistic streak and capitalize on it in a five-minute conversation on an airplane. You know, uh, <laughs> right. I, I don't want to be a carpetbagger. You know, I don't want to be exporting my beliefs to someone else. I want to find them where they are and sort of tell them, here are some things you might want to read if you're interested. Um, that's one of my coping mechanisms, by the way, is to not tangle, <laughs> not engage, where I don't think I'm going to have, <laughs> well, but part of that, you know, purchase. How much of that comes from, from your understanding of the, well, part of that's just your experience, I'm sure. How much of it is a result of your understanding of the that other really important body of science, the social and behavioral sciences? Yeah, that, people don't really that have I an neglected appetite. Forever. They don't have an appetite for apocalypse. I mean, I have an appetite for apocalypse. That doesn't, <laughs> that's me. <laughs> I've had to learn that about myself. Well, Jacqueline... <laughs> yeah, Jacqueline's talked about this too. I know. And she, come, being in Maine, you know, where you're implicitly facing a variegated uh, culture around you, you know, if, if you're not, 
if you go in there shouting climate crisis, climate crisis, it probably would forestall some conversations anyway. I, I saw something on 321 Contact on PBS when I was seven about the, how the earth was falling into the sun. And I was so excited. I ran next door to tell my neighbor and she went running to her mother crying <laughs> and I was thrown out of the house. So I, <laughs> I've had to acknowledge That's... that I have this tendency. <laughs> I think I had a very similar, we sound like we had very similar childhoods. Oh man. I, I wanted to ask you about the, um, the, is, is this how you feel.com mm, yeah. website that you, um, that you cited in there. It was really interesting. And also I wanted to ask you like what, what reactions to your piece and or the blog posts that followed um, either surprised you and excited you in some way or other, but maybe talk first about that. Is this how you feel portal? Yeah. Well, so this is a great place to go to see actual writing by actual scientists who want to put down in you know, black and white pixels how they feel. And this is so taboo, I think, for a lot of especially hard scientists to have feelings because then they get discredited as being biased. So right. I just think it's really important to acknowledge that we are people and that we are facing a problem that is bigger than our tools. And that article, I think, that you sent me from 2012 about this is, um, what was the phrase? It's not extra wicked problem. <laughs> oh, super wicked. Super wicked. It's like, so we need to acknowledge this is, this is hard. And so Michael Mann posts on that website about how he's angry about how people deny this. And I never would have guessed that would be his reaction. <laughs> But, you know, just saying it out loud, I mean, I know that he's not like secret about his feelings, yeah. but, you know, this is good for other scientists to see, I think, and to, to sort of acknowledge that sure. we can have feelings. Camille Parmesan, um, I assume that's how her last name is pronounced. She yeah. has gone on record saying that she doesn't want to look at the landscapes that she has studied that are being destroyed. And I actually reached out to her to see, she, you know, how is she doing? <laughs> like, what what is her strategy? And she goes to places that inspire her. She finds hope and things that are living and, and doing well. Um, but she has to acknowledge that there are some places that it just fills her with too much despair to see. So, yeah, that's that website sort of yeah. gives a home for those thoughts and feelings. Yeah, that's um, that's something I can relate to. I mean, I on the one hand, you know that there's that comic that um, uh, or, you know, it shows up on coffee mugs, things like that, where it's like a dinosaur and it's like, mm -hmm. all my friends are dead, you know, as a, as a, as a person who studies past landscapes and, and long dead biodiversity, I, I do feel like that gives me an edge on, you know, on some level because I don't have to watch my study system fall apart around me in real time. Um, but I have colleagues, you know, folks like Kim Cobb, who I hope we can have on the show at some point mm -hmm. soon, you know, who, you know, you go to, I can't imagine going into your field season and, just seeing like widespread devastation that happened overnight, um, you know, in a system that you've spent your whole career studying and, and loving, um, you know, for me, I, I draw my inspiration from, from, from things like what I just did, right? Like I, I was in the field, I was, you know, on the top of a mountain in Acadia national park, which is one of my favorite places. And, and yeah, I see how the park is changing. I see how it's being imp impacted, impacted by climate change. Um, you know, I got to go to the tar pits and, and the museum collections there and, and, you know, hang out with the fossils. And those, those are the things that I draw my strength from. And it was, it's interesting because I know I, you know, I talked about how depressed I was politically, but like when I focus on the science that actually, 
and ignore the politics for a little while that gives me strength but then you know it's it's like a form of self-care but then I start to feel like am I abrogating my responsibility right like how how it's just that that's one thing I struggle with is how do we be sustainable because I have to be informed um, as a citizen because and as a scientist because if I turn I feel like if I turn my back another right will be taken away or another source of funding or another protection um, or another regulation and and yet I can't focus on those things all the time I'm sorry I'm not trying to use this as like my personal therapy session but but yeah these are the sorts of things that I still I mean we're like eight months in and I still have not figured out how to do that and we're eight months into what you know will be in theory you know, a, a long haul, right? Like this is not something that's going to change overnight. I, I have been uh, taking yeah. some solace in listening to the presidential podcast that came out last year to, um, it was a, a Washington Post journalist. I think her name is Lillian Cunningham. I highly recommend it to take a, a look at how we've, we've been through some really terrible presidents. I mean, we've been through presidents that really, really didn't want to be president and were not competent and had, all kinds of foibles like, oh, corruption and, oh, alcoholism. I mean, we've just had a real gamut of presidents, and it's been helpful helpful for me to understand that there is a before and after. It's not all always going to be like this. I don't know what's next. I don't yeah. know if it's going to be better, but even if we have eight years of this, which I can't imagine, but it could happen, um, there is an after. I recommend. Well, that's funny because that's sort of another time scale. Yes. <laughs> sort of putting it in a different time scale makes it feel more <laughs> survivable, yeah. kind of like with climate too. Um, the, 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 I was exploring the it's is this how you feel site, and it was interesting. There, I noticed right away a name I recognized because I'd, I'd I'd cited this guy a long time ago, Neville Nichols, who's uh, emeritus uh, climate scientist in Australia, and. His uh, post was very helpful. He, he was saying, uh, he was citing statistics for how much media coverage there is of climate change compared to other things we care about. And it's actually not that different. At least that was his, I, I didn't see his citation. But he also said in 2015, um, there were 15,000 scholarly papers published on, with um, search terms climate change, greenhouse effect, or global warming. In 1988, the year the IPCC launched, there were only 68. So he feels that just the fact that there's so much more engagement with it in the science community is a good starting point. But what was interesting to me was that even in that portal, I think you can kind of find what you're looking for there. I, I didn't poke around enough to see the full range of to, to see if there's a bell curve or um, is it mostly woe is me or, or is it other things. But it again gets back to this um, reality that I was late in coming to, which is... Uh, some talks I give these days, I say there, I've learned there is no we. Hmm. I mean, we're all homo sapiens, but there's no, there's no we out there. And not just the behavioral science, there's the, um, you look around the world, spend time in developing countries, you realize that the we uh, that our producer just saw recently in Rwanda, you know, where the, 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 it takes hours to cook a meal on charcoal that's there because they're taking down a forest somewhere is not our we <laughs> when it comes to energy. So, so, and that's like, Another one of these, uh, I don't know, another thing to kind of get either embrace it or repel or get tense about is this diversity that we're kind of stuck with, which is good and bad. The range of responses that we're seeing, I mean, some people just don't have the capacity to respond or they're under 
a regime where there's just no room for civil society organizing or even talking about science in public ways. I mean, we've got mm-hmm. all of this going on, on on this planet that we still, in this country, have a lot of capacity to act. We still have um, our votes. I mean, you can argue about that, but mostly we have our votes. Um, my background is in Russia. Um, I worked on environment, environmental rights and community um, organizing around human rights and LGBT rights, and I'd still take inspiration from people in, in, you know, under a regime that is expressly trying to stamp out anyone working on environmental and human rights. Um, they're expressly trying to roll back civil society, and they're still working. And so, I like to remember that that you know, I have moments of feeling helpless, but there. There are examples in my life of people that, I mean, they're up against like personal violence against their family. They're up against having to flee for their lives, you know, and they're still working. So I can take right. courage from that. Um, one story that I, I love is a family of scientists that live on Lake Baikal in Irkutsk, and they've been taking samples from the lake for over 100 years. They started in 1945, so generation after generation, they just keep monitoring the lake conditions in the same way. (laughs) It's amazing, without pay, necessarily. I mean, they don't, sometimes they have pay, sometimes they don't, depending on the government. You know, they might be doing it secretly, but they have been continuing this, and so their data has produced um, amazing findings that include something that shows how Lake Baikal responds to, I think, the PDO, I mean, it's just unbelievable that this body of water in the middle of Russia has lessons for the world, and it's because of this committed family. So I'm just putting that out there as one of my hero stories. That sounds like the Keelings doing what they did, uh, have done on in Hawaii on with CO2. Having obsessive devotion to collecting data is a wonderful thing. (laughs) Where you see it, that's that's an awesome story. I got to. I'd like to find out more. It's the Ka- um, we're about ready to. Uh, it's the Kozhov family. If you Sorry? want to research that, K O Z H O V. K O Z H O V. How cool is that? Um, Jacqueline, any last thoughts about what keeps you um, from going to that website and posting something sad? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I. You know, I, I listen to I, I listen to and learn from from the folks who have who have been resilient, um, for one, and I, I find a lot of of strength from those folks, as Sarah does. Um, you know, the longtime activists um, uh, who who have who share their strategies about how to to stay resilient, and and even just seeing how people are are able to keep going is also inspiring to me. But honestly. I find a lot of resilience in nature, both in terms of the energy that I get from it when I'm outside, but also in terms of just the lessons for how our ecosystems cope with change. And, you know, there there are a lot of really wonderful lessons there, um, including the idea that, you know, more diverse communities are often much more resilient to perturbation. And I think, you know, we can draw lessons from that for our own human societies. Obviously, I I think that it's easy to take to, to kind of be a little bit too cutesy and trite and take those kinds of lessons too far. Um, but I, I do think that there's a lot to ponder there in terms of, you know, looking at the strategies of, of you know, species that can can hang on in tough times. And, you know, that's, that's something where I personally draw some solace from. 
and and again at the at the end of the day like the earth is just a wonderful puzzle to me and i love puzzles by it's just my nature and so if no matter what else is going on around me those puzzles i think will always draw me in and i will always find joy in in that process of puzzle solving and so i think the important thing is you know to to find joy somewhere in what you do whether that's your job or or your your work as a as a parent or or a volunteer just find something that you can throw yourself into that brings you joy and for those of us who work in a system where um you know the system itself is is suffering in some way or another or is in trouble um just finding joy somehow in just the 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 fact that we have this wonderful opportunity to to solve these puzzles Great. Well, thank you for that gift of an answer. And Sarah Moore, thank you for um, being with us for this Warm Regards episode. Um, well, thank telling you. Us I'm the happy past to be is here. not an option. <laughs> and well, maybe we'll have you back sometime. Pacificadaptation.blogspot.com. You can find out more there. And Stray Cat Girl, is that your <laughs> Twitter? Stripey thing? Girl Cat. Something I picked like that? my Twitter handle before I decided <laughs> to use girl. it as a, Stripey a girl cat. personal. <laughs> professional <laughs> I love that um, okay um, and uh, for those who want to learn more about the, the concepts that Jacqueline just mentioned Google for the phrase response diversity and the word ecosystem I there's an amazing paper written in 2003 uh, about that aspect of resilience so that's it for us um, this is our show if you like what we're doing here Please tell a friend, and as always, feel free to hit us up with your thoughts on future guests, show ideas, anything you think we're doing wrong, um, pretty much anything. Our email address is... Our, or things we're doing right. Sorry. Or things we're doing right, that's <laughs> good. Yes. <laughs> our email address is ourwarmregards at gmail.com, the no punctuation. You can follow us on Twitter at ourwarmregards. For Jacqueline, for Absent Eric, and for our producers, Eric Mack and Jesse Ann Baines, and our guest, Sarah Moore, I'm Andy Revkin. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'd like to thank Wonder Capital for their support of the Warm Regards podcast. Wonder Capital is an award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar energy projects across the U.S. Earn up to 8.5% annually while diversifying your portfolio, curbing pollution, and combating global climate change. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com slash warm. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. <laughs>